is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing Martin Scorsese's gangster epic about what it really means to live a life of crime, Goodfellas. Goodfellas is based on the 1985 book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi. Both tell the dramatized tale of real-life mobster Henry Hill, who had a storied criminal career throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, including the murder of a Gambino-made guy named Billy Batts, the infamous 1978 Lufthansa heist, extensive cocaine trafficking, and of course, a daily grind of hijacking, extortion, arson, bookmaking, assault, and murder. This movie takes on an almost documentary-style walk through Henry's life, which by his own admission was shaped by his desire to become a crook right from the very start. Just Italian enough to join his local mob, but too Irish enough to ever truly become a made guy, Henry enjoys the exhilaration of life as an outlaw, especially the fear and respect it brings. Partnering with criminal mastermind Jimmy Conway and murderous hotshot Tommy DeVito, Henry enjoys a long run under the watchful eyes of mob boss Paulie Cicero, that is, until it all comes crashing down on him in a cascade of karmic debt and the cumulative effect of a thousand bad decisions. Ultimately, justice comes for Henry, just as it inevitably comes for everyone. But when you're a wise guy who has lived beyond the law your whole life, what does justice really look like? Usually not what you'd expect, and usually nothing you ever see coming. Goodfellas was an instant classic when it was released 30 years ago. It made a star out of Ray Liotta, it supercharged the career of Joe Pesci, and it became another legendary performance for Robert De Niro. It's a movie so replete with star power that even standouts like Lorraine Bracco and Paul Sorvino tend to get overlooked when discussing the film. And even though it was fairly snubbed by the Oscars that year, Goodfellas has since been considered by many to be one of the greatest movies ever made. Unflinching, unapologetic, and unforgettable, Goodfellas makes a strong argument for being the finest gangster movie of all time not for glorifying the exploits of those who choose a life of mayhem, but for showing what kind of reward really awaits those at the end of a life of crime. With me today is Chris the Lobster Crenshaw. Tommy, two-time Tespos. <laughs> I gotta go get the papers, get the papers. And Joey, bag of donuts, Pace. Bag of donuts, I get bag of donuts. All right, hey, good evening, everybody. <laughs> Everyone, welcome. So what I thought we would do this time around is go through our moments of truth as we've done with certain other movies in kind of in chronological order, but especially because this movie has such a biopic walk through this guy's life, I thought it made sense to kind of go through things in the order in which they occur. Now, my moment of truth comes first. It actually comes only about 15 minutes into the movie. It's right at the end of what is essentially an extended prologue narrated almost entirely by Henry as he explains how he's always wanted to be a gangster and how he jumped into the life at an early age, and how we see he gets busted for the first time, picked up for selling stolen cigarettes. And there's this great scene where Henry is in court, and the lawyer and the judge exchange these knowing glances, and Henry just seems, he either gets off on the charge or he gets off with a slap on the wrist, but the important thing in this scene is how the rest of his criminal confederates treat him for it. His mentor, Jimmy Conway, takes him aside, slips him a little money in his pocket as a reward, and gives him some criminal mentoring, and he says, Everybody gets pinched, but you did it right. You told them nothing, and they got nothing. I'm proud of you. You took your first pinch like a man, and you learned the two greatest things in life. Never rat on your friends, and always keep your mouth shut. 
And then moments later, Henry goes out and he's met by the entire gang, right? They're all just jubilant, right? And Paul Sistro is like, hey, hey, you know, and he kind of likens the whole thing to Henry losing his virginity. And, and, you know, basically he's now run into the law and he's passed through this gangster rite of passage. So he's no longer a civilian. You know, this kid is now a good fellow. That scene is so cool because it's not only just this guy's, essentially his criminal origin story, but when you see the whole movie and you think back about this scene in hindsight, it's like all of the stuff that's there, like Jimmy's rules and the love he gets from his fellow mobsters and the sense that there might be honor among thieves, it's all a sham. It's all this, this front they do. The entire movie is essentially, because it's narrated by Henry, right? The entire movie is basically him ratting out his entire criminal life yet again, and it offers up all this evidence along the way. The guys like Pauly and Jimmy, they only live up to their words as long as it serves their purposes, you know? I think you really see that later on when, you know, Jimmy, after the Latanza heist, he starts, you know, whacking all the guys he works with, right? He would, he would rather kill them than give them their fair share of the loot. And there really is no honor among thieves, no matter what they like to tell each other and no matter what they like to tell themselves. You know, these guys are all kind of lying to each other and lying to themselves. And the rules they all live by kind of go out the window as soon as it's convenient. And, and ultimately, if you try to live by these rules, we'll see, you either get pinched or you get killed. And so I think... One of the great things about this movie is its authenticity and how honestly it sort of talks about this life. And this scene sets that up so well. People who like to romanticize gangsters kind of fall in for this whole, oh, you know, we've got each other's backs and we family. have rules and it's all family. Exactly. And they, they set all that up. And that's, that's, what, that's the seductive part. That's what gets you to go, yeah, I'll be part of it. And then you see just nothing but this massive line of exceptions to these rules, right? And you realize it's more exceptions than rules. And there is no rule to crime. That's people wanted to follow rules, they wouldn't be doing what they do. I mean, and so there's this inherent contradiction in everything they do. And I just love how this movie sets up. And if you're, if you're, if you're looking for it, it, it really, it's, especially on like a second or a third watching, or for some of us, your 20th or 30th watching. Um, it's just a great, it's a great scene. I really, really enjoy it. I like what you're talking about because when Jimmy says that to him and he says, you know, keep your mouth shut, uh, he essentially gives him two of the same rule right like don't ride on your friends and keep your mouth shut it's the same yeah. rule. they yeah. call him two times the movie goes off the rails for henry when he stops keeping his mouth shut and i don't mean when he rats to the cops i'm talking about throughout the first two-thirds of the movie he says almost nothing to the point where they bring it up at one point they say you just sit there you're so quiet <laughs> yeah you don't they do don't they? and and they, they emphasize the fact that he took this lesson to heart so much that he sits quietly through these dinners and later on once he gets out of jail and he starts getting into drugs and everything, this guy, he never shuts up. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's really fascinating to watch that that's when things come off the rails for him. When he, when he sat quietly and did his thing, he was fine. But when he moved into that sort of lead protagonist piece of, of, of you know, masterminding his own deals, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't hang yeah. out. Who was the actor here who played the young Henry Hill? Because I, I was just really, really impressed with his ability to kind of show like it is like a loss of innocence in so many different ways. Like the scene that you're talking about, Bill, like yeah. even when he, he gets pinched right leading up into that courtroom scene, you see him trying to pass it off to the cop. Yeah. He's like, it's okay. Yeah. yeah it's good. not quite being convincing, but it's obvious he's relying on training from somebody, you know, he's still like a young kid when he's surprised that Jimmy's not mad at him. And he's like, Oh, what are you talking about? I got pinched, you know, like, you can see he's losing his innocence as this scene is progressing, right up until you get the big Pauly Cicero line yeah. you, know, you referenced about, you know, likening it to losing virginity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. How old would you guys say he is in that scene? Fifteen. 
at that's most. what I would yeah. say. If you go back and look at that court scene, his parents aren't there. No, they're not. Oh. Well, what is he going to tell his parents? His dad beats the hell out of him. How do you go to yeah. jail and your parents not find out? Good <laughs> God. The point I'm getting at is that he had adopted a new family. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, his parents didn't mean a, sh- a thing to him, yeah. really. And their approval was everything to him. And, you know, they knew that, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why they all met him. Hey, this is your reward for not giving us yeah. a problem. And it, it's all, you know, completely, it's all completely manipulative on their mm-hmm. part, of course. But yeah. he can't help it. Well, they knew that his, the father was uh, abusive. And that was a way into him. Because they knew, remember, when the letter came home and they went and they roughed up the mailman. No more letters go to mm-hmm. this kid's house. <laughs> no, poor that anybody. Poor mailman. Uh, that scene gets me every time because like, uh, this poor guy's doing his job, right? And then like, and they just come by and terrorize this dude. I mean, he's like completely wrong place, wrong time. But like, I, again, that's another part of this, this prologue I love so much, which is that right off the bat, just strips away anything that's really cool about these folks. When you watch like gangster movies as an audience member, you can kind of forgive like gangsters doing bad things to other gangsters because they're in the life and you have the civilians and, and all sort of stuff. But like these guys are just messing up a, a postman. <laughs> But it's played for laughs. It is Absolutely. played for laughs for the Absolutely. first Absolutely, yes. it, Like it sucks you into the narrative by playing it for laughs. Yeah. Where they, oh, and no uh, more letters at all came to the house. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah ha, ha. Your mom had to go to the post office and can't yeah. Later, he does the same to his girlfriend's boss. Yes. For, ju- just because she was effing up. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> at yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when you talk about his parents and how his parents were there, you see his parents again when he gets married. And they're standing there, and they're standing there like hostages. Yeah, stone face. And they have this look on the face, stone face, yeah. no reaction. They might as well have been holding the sign that says "Send Help." Yeah. But that's the last yeah. time you see. Them. Yeah, and and you see them for like a second, like this. Yeah, no, his hands past them to his real right family. past them exactly till the lining where they're handing him, you know, handing the envelope. Yeah, yeah and and Karen later says, uh, or even maybe in that very scene, because I think it's just a continuation from the marriage that there were never outsiders around. Right. No. Ever. No, no. Like they went to each other's house. Completely closed ecosystem. When you see the photos, and when she's going off in that monologue and talking about what this is, you know, all things we did together, and they have all these photos of like what a normal family should have to mark how they share time with each other, the things they do. But the whole thing is fake. It's all this big ersatz family. Like they're only together because they need each other to commit crime, right? It's essentially a cult. Uh, It's called the familia, though, right? But you know what, though, (laughs) when it really, when it really matters none of these people are ever there for each other you know and that's what a family Absolutely. does and these guys again and again prove just how how much of a farce it really is to call themselves a family of any kind because they're just not there is some brilliance to the screenwriting in that there are some beautiful callbacks to this when he gets in trouble and he goes to his wife's mother's house and she actually says and karen says we couldn't have gone to your mother's house we had to go to my- yeah. We don't even know, we don't know if his mother's yeah. mother, we never hear about his mother, but we hear about her mother. Yeah. When they're going to go into witness protection program that she's talking about never seeing her, her parents again, he doesn't even mention his mother. Yeah. So they, they really draw a, a very sharp contrast between his relationship to his family and that he has no family anymore now that he's been betrayed by his crime family. The only other mention we see of Henry to his family is that right near the end of the movie, during that last act, when he finally gets busted, we see that he's still in touch with his kid brother his in the brother. wheelchair, Michael, right? And he brings him over to his house. And so like, he's, he's actually got a connection with him. And, and we don't see that the entire movie until, until at the very end. And this is interesting because his brother is in a wheelchair. He's younger than him. We get the feeling that he's getting nothing from his brother. It's, it's, it's a legitimate, he's my brother. He's in the family. It's not like, oh, I'm using him to, for some sort of score. 
I'm using him for some sort of advantage. It's just, no, no, my brother comes over. He's helping make the sauce. This is what we're doing. That's the first time you see a glimpse of real family. It's worth noting that 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 only happens after Henry has kind of started exiting from the mob because he's gone off in his own direction. That's the first time we see the brother back. I mean, maybe he was around before. We don't know, but (laughs) he actually has a kind word. He says, this poor kid, he spent all day watching the sauce and looking out the window for a helicopter. Like he actually feels bad. There's like some, it's the only empathy that he shows in the entire movie. Yeah. This is a world where people are awfully short on empathy. And I think it says a lot, by the way, that Henry has to descend like neck deep into a world of cocaine to start to understand that, you know, maybe my brother is somebody worth keeping around. Like, <laughs> like that's, how, that's how far gone he is. I just love that about this movie. And, and I notice it more and more every time I watch it, which is, you know, because it's easy to get so pulled into the exploits of it all and that sort of stuff. But the more you watch it, the more you realize they don't actually spend a whole lot of time detailing how they do the criminal stuff they do. They sort of mention it, like you know, right. just the fact that it happens and these are the lives they can live because they do these things. It's not about, even the Lufthansa heist. I mean, they talk about it. They quickly break down how it works. Movie. It's not a caper. It's movie. not a caper movie. Yeah. and it's I love not a how. Movie, right. Yeah. Gosh, there are no small number of mob movies out there that are just like love letters to the mob, you know. And it's just, I, I just, the older I get, the more distasteful I find it. To be honest, I really, really do. You know, I, I still think there's a big element of that in this movie, and that's well, well I'll well, get to yeah, that later. But, but I mean, I, I think there is, but I think. The reason why I don't mind it in this movie is because I think it's to an end. I never got the feeling that the seductiveness of this world and the the true exhilaration it offers, I don't think the depiction of it was meant to stop right there and just to, it was to bring up a fact that, you know, there's a reason why people fall into this world and we don't see anybody have a good exit from it. Let's move on to the next moment of truth, which I know I believe it's Joe's. So Joe, you want to walk us through the scene uh, that is your moment of truth and, and we can get into to why it's so important to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, not long after we fast forward from Henry's youth uh, into his young adulthood, uh, and he meets Karen, and you have the the ongoing subplot of his relationship with Karen, which is interestingly complex and is actually brilliantly, I'm, I'm going to use the phrase brilliantly acted with Ray Liotta, which I never thought I would ever say, but, but Liotta and Lorraine Bracco, they have a very believable chemistry. They do. Uh, not, not at the beginning. At the beginning, it feels forced, but as they get married and move on, especially later, she does a really wonderful job in this movie i love her descent from innocence she loses her innocence too her 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 cherry moment is getting all the envelopes at the wedding and she's taking these taking these and she's like what about the bag and he's like don't worry about it and she's seduced by the the money and and all of that she has opportunities champagne from singers she has opportunities to leave the life and she doesn't so yes he betrays her let's not pretend she didn't know about the girlfriends all throughout it was part of the life everything else so but she made those those sacrifices for her family and her children and she knew her eyes were open the moment i want to talk about is when he has his uh, apology date after standing her up and she says it's going to cost you and then he takes her to copacabana and there's the line outside right it's a mile long and he takes her through the kitchen he takes through the kitchens and he knows everybody and it's back padding and folded up bills in every pocket hey how you doing you know how you doing everybody's name everybody knows him and her head is her head is turning as he's like a rock star. Uh, this kid, right? He's in his early 20s. And yet here he is. He's connected. He's moving through this world of glitz and glamour. And, and they get out. They, they pull out the table for him. And people are waving and sending him wine and everything. And it's, I've never been a fan of gangster movies. I don't like them. I have a real hard time with irredeemable protagonists. 
I've never watched Breaking Bad. I never watched The Sopranos. I'm just I'm uncomfortable with deification of people who are bad people. Uh, I need someone that I can that I can root for. And that's I'm not saying that those are badly done. That they're that that they're not worth watching. It's just not anything that I've ever been interested in. And I I used to push back hard on that in high school. My buddies wanted to like you know get off on watching this stuff, and I'd be like. Not that The Sopranos and Breaking Bad were long around in high school, but but um, this movie came out. Uh, I was still in high school when this when this movie came out, and I watched it and I took it at face value as that love letter. And I was like, I don't like it. The one scene I remember speaking to me then was this scene because that's kind of what the things that I wanted out of life was to have everybody recognize you, right? You know, it's like the Billy Joel song "Big Shot," right? Like everybody knows you. Here you are. I, I should say "Big Man on Mulberry Street." Not, not Big Shot. The fact that everybody's your buddy and, and, and you're connected and you can make things happen and you're, you're, you're loved. Uh, but watching it again today, it is so clear how absolutely fake it all is, how, how artificial every ounce of it is. These people don't care about him. This is all about the money in the pocket. This is all about access to the lucre. This is all about the protection racket that Polly's running, um, that he's one of Polly's guys and you treat him right or else, you know, maybe Polly hears about it. And this kid is, he's nothing. He's an appendage of an organization. And he's an appendage of an organization who is a profit center. And that it's, it's so artificial, the regard. The, he mentions it a couple of times in the movie. Oh, it's about respect. These people don't respect him. They fear him to a certain extent because yeah. of what he represents. Yeah. And there is no real respect for him as a person. And what we find out as the movie rolls along is there's actually sort of a, antipathy it's transactional it's, it, it's, it's all very transactional but they actually they view him with it's like it's somebody that you shake hands with and then you turn around and go i hate that guy mm. and you know that these waiters after they take his money they tell each other what a jerk that guy is after he's gone through the war and so anybody that's seduced by the idea of this kind of celebrity it's a false celebrity it is a it is a, a transparently uh ugly kind of celebrity that's not mm. That's not real. And it's not sustainable because it all goes away, right? As soon as he's not connected to that. Anymore. Yeah, it goes awfully quick, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's ephemeral. And yeah. uh, once you stop mattering and once you start flowing that, that cash, you don't matter anymore. And so I think, you know, the older I've gotten, the, the, the more I've realized is that, you know, you put in the hard, authentic work of relationships is the absolute opposite of what you see on display in the Cobra Command scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. Respect is when people who don't fear you still open doors for you. Henry and his compatriots, they've got none of that. Like none of that, even any of them can, can sustain it. So everything they do is a castle built on sand, right? Like as long as they have the power in the moment, they get what they want. The moment they don't have that power anymore, it's like, that's it. They, all that power just goes away. There's nothing permanent to what they do. I spent a lot of spade work watching it today, trying to think, okay, who's the only, like, who are redeeming characters? Who do I see where there's, you know, uh, a redeeming <laughs> The closest I come, other than the DA at the end, who says in my favorite, actual favorite line, he's like, I don't really care what happens to you. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just yeah. like, I don't care. Yeah. You're bad just, guys. I don't yeah. care what happens to you. This is the real world coming at them yeah. like just a steamroller. Yeah. <laughs> the guy's just like, you're, I don't care. You could die. You guys, it doesn't matter to me. It's funny because they hold up these, um, sort of avatars, right, of the different archetypes. Yeah. And Polly is the one who's like, he kind of, there's like that code of honor you talk about a little bit, where I'm going to take care of you, but I'm, if you do the wrong kind of bad thing, you get into these drugs, I'm not into that, like, you know, I can't go there with you. And, 
in the Twisted Code, he's the only one that he does kind of a he's still a gangster and a criminal, but he kind of hews to that line where Henry, Tommy, and Jimmy play fast and loose with those rules. Yeah. He's also smarter than than they are about security. And knows how to put his head down when he needs to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, he later goes to jail for a year for contempt. Contempt. Which is, I ain't telling you nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I'm like yeah. who goes? I love that moment though. Like I love that detail. Like who goes to jail for a year for contempt? Like that's clearly right. like <laughs> he pissed somebody, like, he pissed off. somebody <laughs> off. But also, it's like like that's like that's a charge. Of, like they know they have him for so many other things, but they'll never get him. Like we're just gonna make you like this is a year tax on you. Okay, this is justice tax. <laughs> we know it doesn't matter, but f you, man. <laughs> it's the best they can do because that's how. <sighs> but like. Paulie plays for the long term. He, that's why he runs things, right? He can actually delay his gratification. And, and, and let's and, be honest, that jail time is not right. the same jail time that everybody sees. In no. I suspect we're going to talk no. about that. But I also, I, <laughs> we didn't talk about it earlier during Henry's you know, scene that you talked about. When he goes to try to approach the judge to like explain himself, and the judge kind of looks over his shoulder at the guy, and the guy kind of is like, hey, he's one of you guys. Yeah. And the judge, judge kind of rolls his eyes, and he's like, okay, time for me to make my money. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> and it's just like uh. one of the things i like about the copa scene and i would just love to get you guys take on this is that he walks in and like i mean people have written small books about the technical aspects of the scene right like just how how well orchestrated all it was it was a great use of the steady cam everything was perfect for like two whole minutes or whatever which just as he as he kind of tracked it in it was just astonishing to watch it all happen but narratively there are these delightful details in there like when when they come in and, and the matron is like, oh wait, it's one of these guys. Quick, you know, and he calls for the table. As they walk by, you can hear in the background a couple of people going, "Hey, wait a minute, how come I can't get a table?" Like 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 the regular you know the regular <laughs> Chinooks in line, right? Yeah. What I love is that he gets in there and they're like, these guys are like a pit crew. They just have that table down. They assemble it so fast, like boom boom, electric <laughs> electric light, bam up, everything's ready to go. Like they know how to do this. And I noticed as I watched it again. We see these other scenes of the Copa. It's jam-packed because it's like this real big hot club, but it's unusually jam-packed down front. And I wonder how many of those tables are actually just drop-ins for other wise guys. Like, all right, <laughs> more than one. Yeah. More than one. Like they're all because they're all crammed in, saying hi to each other. All just crammed in. There. I just, I just love that fact. Like they've just like barnacles. They just sort of fill up the whole place. <laughs> you, you mentioned the other thing I, that I enjoy about this scene is the technical aspect of it. Now, I'm, a, I'm a huge West Wing fan, and John Wells and Tommy Schlamy are clearly influenced by this with the, some of the shots that they have of the walk and talks and the steady cam work that they do and going through kitchens and they're here are all the people working in the kitchen and there's there's some shot frame by frame replications of these scenes that uh, that appear in some of the episodes of the West Wing that it, uh, it clearly influenced the way that they shot which then influenced the way television was shot for decades so it's a, it's a very important scene to yeah. the industry in that sense. I love how they, you know, they yeah. capture that background sound, but it's very clearly there for everybody to understand. Like there's people complaining that they didn't get a table and you actually hear like the maitre d' say like, I realize you're waiting for a table. You know, but, like, <laughs> it's just, like, that perfect level right there. Well, this like, guy might kill background us. Background noise, but they really <laughs> want me to hear that. Like, <laughs> it kind of gets to a larger thing about this movie, which is that, you know, it's a long movie. It's like almost two and a half hours long, but 
I don't get the sense that there is a whole lot of wasted time or energy in this thing at all. I mean, I'm like, it, it, no, it, like it, it accomplishes an awful lot. And every scene is like really directed and really fine tuned and everything happens for a reason, you know? And so we can get these little details, like you know, the people in the, in the background going, Hey, how come I don't get a table? Like they, they made sure that was there, you know? And there's so many shots. Where there's a lot of people that are panning by all these details kind of come up. I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. There, there are two scenes, two like parallel scenes in this flick. In one, it's Janice, Henry's yeah. first girlfriend. I think Janice. Yeah. She's got all her girlfriends coming into her house, the apartment that Henry has rented her. And, you know, it's all gorgeous for the day. Yeah, for the day. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty awful. But she was so proud of everything. Yeah. She was, you know, pointing out every little thing to every all her friends and how awesome everything is. And you know, this is how my man's taking care of me. And then after henry gets out of prison we see karen do exactly the same thing yes and like years later than his mistress yeah which is i don't know that is saying something you oh, know? oh yeah yeah that's on purpose yeah. well, well, well you know <laughs> the relationship between henry and, and karen is really kind of fascinating and you know when you watch this movie just as a as a crime movie you tend to forget the karen stuff but the karen aspect of this is is really super important like you see how she descends into this world yeah she's dazzled by the copa and then like you know not long after is when you have that iconic scene where kid from across the street you know hassles her henry just rolls up and, just, and he's like oh you want a piece of this and he just pistol whips that kid i mean it is a direct and brutal beatdown. Like, oh my I love god! His buddies, I love his buddies. All, all of his friends are just like backing up. <laughs> I, don't know, yeah. I don't know this guy. I yeah. and, I'm looking at like, the car. I don't. And, you know, you know he, he hits him like eight or nine times with the butt of a gun, and then immediately points it at one of his friends, like just to make the point. It's like, don't shoot! It's like these guys made not a move. It's like, oh my god! And then he goes, "Here, hold this for me." Right, and she has that hide moment. This. Where, yeah, 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 yeah. Hide, hide it. it. And, and and she talks about you know yeah, a lot of my friends would have would have bolted you know, but I gotta admit it kind of turned me on. And if you look at her holding it, not only is the gun in her hand, it's bloody. You can see her finger very gently goes to the trigger. She's like, oh man, that's another little detail. Yeah. Like you can just the finger on the trigger says a lot more than just her holding it in her hand passively. She's like, yeah, no, no, I get it. That relationship gets so it's twisted from the start it keeps getting twisted the more adversity it faces. And there's this great moment, you know, you mentioned Rossi, Karen finds out about it and she's like hitting all the buttons. Like, hello, superintendent. I'll let you know you have a horn to R, Rossi. And just like going off and like, like man. She's she got the kids with her while she's She got the kids it. with the her. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, right. whoo, full court press, right? But but um, when that, then she gets up and she straddles him in the bed and he wakes yeah, up with the gun wake up, face, Henry. And, and he's, you know, quietly talking about it. Okay. And then he knocks her and it to the ground, and then he turns the tables on her. And I love this line so much. It's all wrong and twisted. But when he yeah. says, I got to worry about being shot in the street and I got to come home to this, it's like he's like, I get this job stress. You know what I mean? Like he talks yeah. about it like he's got a day job where he's got like these issues. <laughs> that, you know, now I'm going to come home and you don't have dinner ready. It's like, no, no, I come home and you've got a gun on me. Come and on. then he stomps out. And she's, she's on the ground, sorry. and she's gonna, yeah, on the ground crying. I'm sorry. And it's like, so powerful. She, yes. like she's got nothing to oh apologize. So powerful, right? She's got nothing to apologize for, and she's just wailing. I think what's amazing is that I don't think you really see any genuine mutual need or tenderness between the two of them after the, the initial romance. I think until the very end, when he's convinced Jimmy Conway's gonna whack the both of them. And they had this one completely terror-filled night where they sleep together. It's when she throws away his reserve. Yeah, uh, she throws away his reserve cocaine. And they're just like on bed. They now truly need each other. And, and, and that's, that's what a relationship is. It's mutual, really true mutual support and need. And for the first time, we see it only when, when they are at the absolute precipice of anything. That, that's when we see it you know, for the first moment. And you're like, 
a shame it took him all this time <laughs> to get there like normal people do but they well, she abandoned she abandons him at the end she chooses her parents over him which has to be like you know, for a guy who's like essentially yeah. sought family yeah yeah all right so i think i'd like to move to the next moment of truth which is tom's i'd say this one in a movie that is chock full of iconic <laughs> moments of truth this one is darn near the top tom can you can you talk us through this scene and talk us through why this is your moment of truth so many different reasons why this is like a moment of truth so when you kick off the movie you know these guys are traveling with a body in the trunk and then it goes into flashback for like the first third of the movie this is the scene right before you catch up and it, you know it takes off from there uh where you find out that this guy uh who's in the trunk is this billy bats guy basically you know henry's got his bar you know he's got billy bats in there he's having like a little par party after coming back from six years in prison and uh, Jimmy Conway's there and in walks Tommy with his girl, you know, his latest girl. Oh, my God. It's just, you know, he doesn't get over to Billy to say hello. And Billy's all drunk. You know, he doesn't get over fast enough. And, you know, it devolves very quickly into just ball busting. Billy starts telling the story, which is clearly getting to Tommy about, you know, how he was in his youth and how, you know, Tommy spit shine and, you know, he used to shine shoes and it's clearly getting to him. And he, you just see him like boiling about to boil over. You get to this point where you're like, okay, this might, he might get through this without boiling over. And there's this just wonderful moment right there where like Henry's really trying to keep the peace. And, you know, you've got Jimmy who's kind of, you know, trying to stay neutral, but like, you know, they really don't want to see anything bad go down in this bar, even though Billy Bats is really insulting Tommy. And there's a, just like a brief pause and, you know, Billy Bats takes his drink and he's, he's about to put it down and he goes, now go home and get your fucking shine box. And Tommy just loses it. It just loses it. He, he has to be restrained. You know, like they're really just trying to get, keep this guy from like going at him, you know, with, with blows. And, you know, he says, keep the guy here, keep the guy here. And he leaves with his girlfriend and like, Oh my God, like th this scene is just so tremendous in terms of like what I identify it with for a number of reasons, but you know, Tommy comes back into the bar later and you kind of wonder what's going to go down. Are they going to, you know, are they going to keep him back again? Or are they, uh, you know, they're just going to let go down what goes down and boom, Jimmy Conway's with them right there. Boom. They're stomping the guy down to the ground. They're giving him a brutal, brutal beating, you know, which ends up with uh, Tommy shoving the gun in his face and the guy died, you know, well, we think he's dead, but uh, you know, they take him out. And, you know, Billy Bats, he's a made guy. So, like, this moment in the movie represents a couple of different things. Like, why, why I like it as a moment of truth is, like, it's a mark in this movie. Like, mm. the golden age of coming up is over, gentlemen. Like, the golden age is over. You will never see those, you know, highfalutin going to the Copa days again. Because everything's going to unravel from here. You have committed a cardinal sin, and it is over. Everybody has that one friend <laughs> who like just cannot let things go, cannot take that slight to his honor. There is always that moment where you're like, I got to get this guy's back. But like, how many times are we going to do? There's always that choice of like, am I going to get his back? You know, I should let him get his butt kicked, but you know, I, I, I got to get his back. <laughs> 
they turn around and you see, you know, Jimmy's right there with them and they, they take the guy out and, you know, they start wrapping him up in the tablecloths and uh, Henry's got to go in and get the door so that nobody else can get in. Like, it's clear that, you know, they, they've done this before, but they've not done this with a made guy. So, you know, it's a huge moment of truth in that regard. Another loss of innocence. I mean, not like they were innocent coming up to that, but like now you've yeah. really stepped over. You've broken a cardinal mob rule and you're not going to recover from this. When, when when Jimmy joins in like instantly, that was like a big moment. I, 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 that actually stunned me. Oh, yeah. Why is he doing that? And and you know it's you know, I, I guess by this point you know Paulie has already said uh, or maybe he does it later that you know tells Henry to you know be careful of uh, Jimmy because he's a hothead and you know he he goes yeah. off half cock, um, which he amusingly doesn't say about Tommy. <laughs> 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 but you I mean I, I was like, what, Jimmy, what the f- what are you doing? What you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I look at this movie in thirds. Like the first third is the golden years. The second third, everything starts to unravel. So you see Henry start lying to Paulie. He said, oh, I don't know where this guy went. You know, he starts lying about the drugs. The girlfriends start coming in. Like all the stuff that's going to eventually undo him, you start to see that immediately portrayed right after this scene. It is really just like the turning yeah. point in the movie. And I, I, I love it for that. <laughs> a very, very large stone slowly begins to roll downhill at yep. this point, you know, and it's like, you can't unroll the stone, man. It's like, it just. When we talk about, about, you know, Henry for all his flaws is the accessible every man, I guess, if you will, that right. we're supposed to see it through his prism. Whereas Tommy and Jimmy are different kinds of sociopathic maniacs. Right. And that is brought in sharp relief when they have to go back and dig him up after they bury him and they got to go back and dig him up and Henry's throwing up. He's getting sick and these guys are laughing. They're, they're, it's yeah. a good joke to them. And like, they're actually uh, saying stuff to him. That's going to make him right. Even right. Like exactly. likening it to food. Oh, and like, you want a wig or a leg? What do you want? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might as well be offering him a nice greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly. But I do love the line too. After they, after they mess up bats and bats and, Tommy says, I'm sorry I got blood on your floor. That's what he's sorry about. He got blood on his He just ruined everything for everybody forever. Right. This scene gives rise to, I think, the only, from what I can remember, the only two genuine moments of empathy we really see by people outside of like Henry and his wife, but like in that larger constellation of gangsters to hang with we immediately see that weird moment of, you know, where, where Tom is like, I didn't mean to get blood on your floor. He genuinely feels bad, probably because he got blood on his friend's floor, right? It's just, <laughs> but, he, but, he, but he feels like embarrassed, like, oh man, I'm so sorry. It wasn't professional, sorry. <laughs> totally unprofessional. He seems almost embarrassed. Like there's a weird look in his eyes, you know? And like nothing happened in this movie by accident. He's embarrassed about what he did, but he can't say that. You know, ultimately this whole thing comes full circle later in the movie when Tommy thinks he's going to be made and instead catches a bullet in his brain, which, you know, the funny thing is, we're not even 100% sure it was for the Billy Bats killing. Saying it, it was for Billy Bats and a number of other things. Or something. And what's funny is that as I, was, as I was doing research for the show, this whole episode in real life, there's a pretty good theory that when this guy was killed for the Bats murder, it turns out it wasn't for the Bats murder at all. They never put, they never put them all together. They thought it was for another killing this guy had done bat style where he killed some other guy in the Gambino crew and they got him for that, you know? He was just a douche um, and they didn't want him in their family. I mean, I guess. This, but, this but, but in real life, though. I mean, like... Yeah, Bats, no, no, Billy Bats... Uh, they was, was in on Bats' business and, like, you know, in, in real life, what I heard was that, that this is more of, like, an ambush by 
uh, by Tommy and Jimmy Conway because yeah. they had taken so much of his business while he was in prison and taken over so much of it. Uh, it's going to be bad blood <laughs> yeah. anyway. But I love yeah. this. But this was way more dramatic and way more, yeah. like, you know, yeah. really just you devoted know, yeah. the moment, you yeah. know, where, where everything yeah. just starts to go downhill. But- <laughs> but but that second moment of empathy though is, is when Tommy gets whacked and then you see Jimmy like he's, he's calling because he's so excited about his friend oh. and he learns like yeah I'm sorry we did everything we could we could he's gone and you see him he's like banging the phone and he's crying and is he crying because his plans are screwed up or is he crying because he lost his friend and it's hard to read the characters he's crying right it could be it could be yes <laughs> it could be yes to both I don't know um, I still don't know yeah, you know, I, you know, but know, but they do, but they do appear to be genuine tears, and I think what they're genuine for, I'm not sure. But at least they're genuine tears, and they're prompted because he doesn't need to cry in front of Henry to prove anything. Wow. He just he, he overcome with emotion. It's the first time, apart from Tommy feeling you know weird about getting blood on the floor, you see these guys show any human emotion over the things they do. Yeah, they obviously that when they when they shoot Spider, they don't care. I mean, it's it's whatever. Henry drives home that Jimmy was not so much excited about. Tommy being made for Tommy. He was excited about Tommy being made for what it would do for Jimmy. Oh yeah, sure. It was going to be his man on the inside. It was the yeah. culmination of all of his plans. He couldn't be made because he wasn't full blood Italian. He essentially grooms Tommy to be his stalking horse to get into the family and become a made man. And when that falls apart, it's like, oh man, this yeah. was going to be like the, you know, and so I, I think there's probably some percentage of it where it was like this kid he had raised, right? Because he essentially yeah. raised these two kids. He kind of mentored him, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I will say that it was a runner-up on my moment of proof for when Tommy gets shot in the head, not only because I was glad to have him out of the movie, but when he walks <laughs> in, and Tommy's been all bluster the whole movie. Yeah. And then when he walks in and he realizes, he knows a half a second before it happens, and his reaction is just, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. It's, so, it's the most human where they keep paint and tools and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. and he knows, and he just his face falls. Yeah, like, oh, like this. Here's a whacking room, and I fell for it. So we, we mentioned the spider scene before, and I think one of the reasons why I like Tom, your moment of truth, so much, and kind of the dialogue that follows it is that as this scene happens. And then we follow them as they go to, you know, Tommy's mom's house for that hilarious dinner scene, right? He's like, I need this knife. Yeah, I'm going to take this knife, mom. Okay. Like, the good grief. The paw, the paw, the hoof, right? Bring um, it back. Yeah, right? As Henry starts to narrate over that scene, and we kind of see the same scene a second time, he's talking about just how, you know, it got to the point where people are killing each other all the time over the stupidest of things, over the stupidest, stupidest of beefs. You know, they're doing it to each other. This is one of those movies where it kind of violates the whole show don't tell rule through its excessive narration but it works to every rule is an exception and it works here because the narration makes it lends it like a documentary kind of sense to it which i and i love how he explains it but also how they back that up in in other scenes so you see you know like the scene with spider right they're just hanging out in one of these places doing what they do right just drinking laughing playing cards whatever and this kid spider is serving them all drinks and what i love about this scene is that this kid spider that could have been that's henry, henry. it was it yeah. is right yeah right, right. Yeah, you know, and he's this kid who fails to get Tommy a drink quickly enough or fails to hear the order. And of course, he makes the mistake of, you know, getting into this verbal kind of semantic argument with Tommy over what the nature of the order was. And it's like, dude, don't do that. These guys are these guys are all hair triggers. Tommy gets crazy about it and starts shooting off bullets and shoots the kid in the foot, right? So they take him to the doctor. He's like, oh, and again, another little little sound as they're hauling him away. He's like, I can feel the bones. They're all shattered. <laughs> right? His foot is so jacked up. 
two scenes later, we're back in the same place and you see Spider hobbling on this massively bandaged foot and Tommy cannot help but bust his balls over, right? And so, you know, he's, he's, he's like, you know, Tommy, why don't you go fuck yourself, right? And like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Jimmy's like, Tommy, you're going to let him do that? And, but Jimmy and, twists the knife. I could not Sorry. believe yeah. Jimmy did Jimmy. that. Yeah, so Jimmy's twisting the knife. And, and it's like Jimmy, and, and of course, Tommy, is, he just pulls out his 45 and, you know, annihilates poor Spider, right? Uh, and now they got, you know, just this senseless murder. And then Jimmy's immediately like, Joe, what'd you do that for? And it's like, Jimmy, you, you of all people should have known what was going to happen if you egg on a guy like Tommy over something like this. You guys all live by the law of the jungle. All they have is showing how tough they are, right? Because Tommy was going to let it go. Tommy, you got the sense yeah. that he was like, okay, the kid kind of came back. I like that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I like, I like bit. that. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. at the end of the day, Tommy's got a hole in his foot. I, I mean, uh, Spider's got a hole in his foot and Tommy doesn't, right? Yeah. But like these guys live in this world where if you take the slightest thing from them, they have to respond 10 times harder or, or else- it's all zero sum. Or else they're giving everybody a license to do whatever they want to them. So like poor Spider, who frankly- his popping off on Tommy was probably restrained given the fact that he got shot in the foot for nothing. Um, you know, and, and there it goes. You know, there's another scene with Tommy, which is that infamous, you know, funny, funny how scene, right? Like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Yeah, I'm a clown, I'm, I'm amuse you. Certainly the most famous scene in the movie, I think. Probably, yeah. I mean, the when one they get the, the shine one, box, the one that Tom's talking about. Yeah. Favorite, but yes. I don't know. I, th- I think this one. The funny, funny how scene that gets quoted and paraphrased an awful lot. And it's just this great scene because it's you know they're all just sitting around laughing and tommy tells a funny joke or he tells a story and everybody's kind of laughing and you get the sense actually that like there's this culture where you laugh at the guy telling the story even if he's not funny you still laugh at him henry makes the the mistake of having one comment after the laughter dies so he's heard and he goes oh you're funny it's like what funny funny how right and suddenly the room goes silent like when that all happens you can hear a pin drop there's no talking anywhere and it's just tommy's like i'm funny how funny i amuse you and just going off and he's like get the fuck out of here tommy leave me alone and then the, the room explodes in laughter again well, this is an example you talk about no wasted yeah. scenes this scene goes on too long like that that's like yeah they, they go back and forth a few beats too yeah. many to the point and I, I know it's intentional like to make you oh, yeah, yeah. comfortable with how long it is you're like but what's great is that you know that scene moves right into the owner of the bar comes in to ask Tommy to pay his bill and he's standing behind him and as soon as that as soon as the whole like you know funny funny how thing kind of breaks you see him and his head's not even in the frame you see him he's fanning himself with the paper because he's like oh boy we almost saw a murder right here and like <laughs> he does it anyway but but just to Tom's point it undercuts how the threat of violence is ever present in this world right and it's just it's so self-generated and so stupid it's like yeah tom like we've all had that friend you got to hold back all the time like oh man like here goes so and so push the wrong buttons yeah i can't handle that yeah here we go (laughs) you know here 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 we go it's back to the future calling him chicken essentially right (laughs) yeah (laughs) nobody calls me tom i think you're right so much of this movie really hinges on this scene right it really the momentum everything shifts and changes and it sets up some of those important things about it but you know, the, the nature of like, why is the violence so present, right? Why is it so easily surfaced? And, you know, it's that notion of, you know, as soon as somebody smells weakness on you, they have to come after you, right? And we ultimately see that manifest itself. Like, like in a strange way, this scene kind of portends, I think, at least tonally, what I think is probably some of the most chilling scenes of the whole movie, which is near the end, after Henry's been busted for the big cocaine thing, and he's wondering, is, is Jimmy going to kill me and my wife or not, right? 
there's a scene where he meets him in the diner and he's talking to him and he's like, you're going to go down to Florida for this thing. It's clearly a trap. Or this other thing where like he tries to get, you know, Karen to like go down this. Yeah, get his oh, that was yeah, so stressful. All that scene. Right. So stressful. And he's sitting there looking and he's looking behind him like anything happening. You're like, man, something terrible is about to happen here. Karen, please be smart. And like he's setting this all up. And it's like this is this is that law of the jungle we're talking about. Jimmy is freaked out. And so he's trying to cover his bases. But Jimmy also knows that in this moment, Henry and Karen are weak. So he's just going to take care of them because he can't. That's what this world is. And that, that shine box scene is like, that's that world like on one, <laughs> right? Like that's, that can happen just on a Tuesday in that, in that world. <laughs> just shouldn't be happening with the made guy. You know, this thing is like, well, this is where it all ends. This is where that kind of world brings you. It brings you to places like going down Karen's alley, which is just, you know, sketchy as hell. You know, and it was it was just so creepy. The whole thing was scary. Well, I mean, let's let's be honest. When we start talking about organized crime and these families, right? Like, essentially, these are all alliances in the Hunger Games. Like, yeah, I mean, we're all just talking about like, okay, you and I will be together, but then eventually, I'm going to have to turn on you. And it's like, you know, when the time comes, and that the big Lufthansa score, like Jimmy was just methodically getting rid of everybody, so he wouldn't have to share <laughs> that money or, or be able to get caught from it. For all the guys that he was introducing, you know, like in the beginning of the movie and he like this guy and this guy, yeah. you know, like they're all like partying it up and everything like that. Then you see, you know, Carbone hanging in the, the freezer. Yeah. It should not be ignored <laughs> that we get a pretty young Sam Jackson, Samuel L. Jackson. In this movie. You yeah, fucking funeral. You believe your own funeral. <laughs> yeah. Stacks. Yeah. Of course, Stacks is the first one to first one to buy it. So I think now's a good time to move on to our final moment of truth. To me, it's actually kind of a funny scene. I like it quite a lot, but I'd love for you to walk us through and, and talk about why you why you enjoy this part of the movie so much. This comes uh, about a little bit more than halfway through the film. And my moment of truth is my moment of truth because it's just, it's the scene I remember the most. It, it just stuck with me more than anything else in this movie. And it's it's the dinner in prison scene where the mobsters are all together they're all being held together and they, they've got like a, a dorm room essentially and you know a hot plate and they, they make a big deal of dinner and, and, and so they have a pasta course and a meat course or a fish course <laughs> and and they've got like these gorgeous steaks their uh, marinara sauce is hysterical because uh with only two cans of tomatoes the guy uses three small onions which is just way too much but still a good red sauce <laughs> near the end of the scene a guard comes in and drops off a case of lobsters here's your lobsters these guys are not living in the same world even when they're in prison and this is why like you know when you, you talk about how this movie is about how crime is going to screw you this kind of life is poison and I don't disagree. I don't think that's even deniable, but I do think it very much glorifies the life of a mobster. I want to point out that this scene was immediately preceded by Henry. You know, he he's like at his like going away party or whatever. He goes out. He he leaves the room with Karen. They go down to the street. She gives him a hug, and then he gets in the car and pops some pills this is the first time we've seen him taking drugs and says take me to jail so then they do this this dinner scene which is just it's just funny it, it, it you know it's like 
there's nothing going on plot wise at all until its end and yet i don't know for me it made the movie now at the end of this scene you you see ray liotta leave the room because he's got to go do some drug deals because you know along with getting uh the, the bread and and the wine for dinner which how do you do that in prison he has he has received a shipment of drugs and he's he's, he's got to go move it later on paulie comes to him and says look you got to stay away from that junk i'm not talking about what you did inside yeah you did what you had to do but out here you can't do that stay away from the drugs and he can't because he's making money whereas you know the killing of jimmy bats is certainly a point henry's personal point is when he gets in, involved in drugs and everything unravels for him at that point you know he was done before he ever even got out of prison another super tense scene was of course that, that the helicopter following him around for like 10 minutes of the movie you know it, it, it never goes away for for he, he he cannot feel safe anymore ever again Be, I mean, largely because reagan era america is so after drugs but i feel like that scene that that dinner scene showed so clearly that being a gangster is goddamned awesome <laughs> it is awesome you go to jail and you eat like a king and and you don't have to worry about the other people because they're scared of you and and, and ridiculously i've got have you gone through this movie to try and figure out what it like where this scene is taking place because I'm looking around in that room, that dorm room that they've got, like yeah. some sort of like bars in the like that does not look like Rutgers Island. Yeah, I know. Probably. <laughs> I mean, well, that's that's this is a key component because you asked the question, Chris, how do you do this? And it's pretty clear that guards are looking the other way. Absolutely. And, you know, his wife is bringing yeah. stuff. In. I mean, heck, by the way, when when Karen comes in. And, and delivers his drugs and and his 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 salami. <laughs> She's just like slamming everything out on the table. She's so mad. And the, the guard comes and looks, and he's like, "I think I think that looks more like, oh god, I hate to have to go. I don't want to see this. I just I don't want to see this. I would just wish they'd stop because everybody can be going and you know. So when yeah. that scene, by the way, is one of the hardest to watch for me in the entire movie is when. She brings the kids in, right? And it's that visitation yeah. and she's doing the giving him the stuff. She's flipping out, she's angry, and he is within the context of the reality in which they inhabit, making good points. He's like, <laughs> just gotta do this. We gotta be together through this. Like, can you you gotta keep helping me? You're going, Yeah, I know he's right. And then you're thinking, Am I like, crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Why am I agreeing with this right? guy at this moment? <laughs> Why would I ever do oh that? Oh my god, I, Henry Hill is the perfect gaslighter like before i knew that before that was a word yeah yes right henry hill gaslights yeah. the ever looking loving heck out of his wife the entire and his does. girlfriend and, and his but girlfriend he, yeah. and he, he tells her like i'm in jail i don't have any control over who comes and visits me right like yeah, really like you just uh, you really went to a lot of effort to push janice <laughs> out the door when she yeah <laughs> But I, yeah. I love to, to your to yeah. specific to your point, Chris, about the, the food and how they go into detail about what they're cooking and how and everything. 
later in the movie when it is all apart and the helicopter's overhead and it's all about to go to hell. What does he do in his narration? He tells you about how he's cooking the nice lean cutlets that he uh-huh. breaded. As an and, appetizer. Uh, and he goes into detail about <laughs> yeah. what he's making for dinner and how, you know, like, okay, these nice cutlets I got, and I'm making the meat, yeah. it's a real nice lean thing, you know, and the sauce <laughs> I'm going to do it. It's, uh, that made yeah. me, uh, to me, there's a little bit of sending up mafia with that maybe yeah well i i i i I do want to point out the scene where the guy is making the meatballs three three kinds of meat in the meatballs beef veal and 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 pork you got to have the pork because that's the flavor (laughs) like i can't put three kinds of meat in my meatballs at home you know (laughs) Like, you're a free man <laughs> yeah yeah exactly well, 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 well there's another great line in a scene where they're talking about how you know, they, you know they're doing everything on grills right and, and the guy's grilling up a steak and he goes how you want your steak and the guy goes medium rare he goes medium rare an aristocrat <laughs> and you're, you're like i just that, that line is so hilarious dude. it's really funny um and definitely in that scene, you very much get the sense that there is a world apart, even in prison. But it's only if you can swing it, right? right. Yeah, you know. And Henry talks about, yeah, being in prison wasn't so bad. And and at one point, when he's talking to he's talking to Karen, and this could this could very well just be him gaslighting Karen somewhere. But he goes, you know, who goes to prison? Guys who want to go to prison, get away from their wives. And you're like, and you're like, he's probably gaslighting her. But when you see what they're like in there, like maybe he's not wrong. Like maybe that's like, you know what? I'm going to go away for a short period of time. I do think that there's something important about that scene, though, which is that the life Henry lives inside is a lot different when Polly is gone, right? When he's there all by himself, it's a lot more desperate and hard scrabble mm-hmm. than it, when he would hang hang with Polly. And Polly's only there for a year, right? right. Um, and he was he was doing a year. That doesn't mean he was actually in for a year because he was doing because Henry was doing ten years and he did four. So how long can the lion be away from the Pride Lands before the hyenas move in, right? Like Polly was not away for a long period of time. So, you know, maybe he could swing that power to really have a palatial stay. But if that had been like his 10th year in there, I don't think it would be the same thing. Because when he was talking to Henry going, you got to stay away from this stuff, all right? Don't make me look like a jerk. He spins a yarn about some old gangster who got sent up for 20 years at the end of his life. And now he's 70 years old. Which is what happened. (laughs) Which happened to him. But he doesn't talk about it like that guy's living a good life. He's like, dude, like when that happens, it starts becoming real time. I don't need that. I'm dying at 73 with... You know, respiratory illness. <laughs> Something else that I noticed about that whole scene, and actually I only noticed it today when I rewatched the movie, is when you go back to the Billy Bats shine box scene, right? Tommy goes in Tasmanian devil mode and they gotta they gotta haul him out of the bar, right? And Bats goes, Oh man, and he starts talking about how he used to rape guys in prison like Tommy. The Polly Cicero jail experience does not entail rape. <laughs> okay. It, 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 it's just, it's not that kind of experience. Well, not not but receiving clearly, it anyway. <laughs> well, not receiving it, but, but but you know what, though, seriously, I mean, if that was if that's what those guys were were like, they would have the story would have made a point of mentioning. Right, it. absolutely. Yeah, any... but Paulie wasn't into that. Sure. Well, yeah, but the thing is, but Billy Bats is in for six years. He did six years, right? So I'm thinking, you know what? So it's like, how long does it take to be away before the power you had is gone, right? And then and then you're in with everybody else, and you can no longer have the lobsters coming and all that. So it's like. Yeah, you can have that power that even in jail you can have a posh time, but I don't think that lasts forever. And I think Billy Bats is a good example of how like that that stuff all falls away pretty quick because you know it's expensive to live like that in jail, and you're not earning when you're in jail, so it goes away fast. I always thought that was a throwaway line by uh, Billy Bats. I thought that was just him being like, "You're nothing. You're you're like, or just almost like a homophobic slur or something like that." That he was just yeah. continuing to bust yeah, maybe on. yeah. You know, I mean, either way, I I I, I didn't. 
could very well be my, my own bias is I'd like to think that Martin Scorsese is is incapable of making a continuity error of some kind, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, but, but but I just noticed it today. I think in part because I knew I knew the scene was coming. I was kind of expecting it, and and I remember like when I first saw it, I was really struck by holy cow, these guys are living like a better life in jail than I lived when I first got out of college. That jail scene also shows that like you only get these guys, they only get what they want by preying on the weakness of others, right? Sure. It's all about whether it's physical weakness, financial weakness, legal weakness, moral weakness, the only thing they can do is exploit weakness. Joe's scene. I'm sorry, Tom's scene. No, it was the, it was the other scene, uh, the uh, I'm a funny guy scene. When when that yeah. bar owner comes and tries to talk to Tommy about his tab, yeah. they do, they wind up taking over the restaurant, the mob does. And and mm -hmm. what they describe, it's just horrifying. You, you feel so bad for the oh, guy. Yeah. like. You know, this is his yeah. life's work. This is he's 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 worked forever to build it's this. It's a damn shame. And and, and the, yeah, it's a damn <laughs> shame. Right. They they just they just suck it dry and cast it, it over their shoulders. They, they don't give a crap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. locust came in, and he's all on his credit. It's all you know everything that he's built up, and they just take yeah. advantage of it. They talk about taking the cases of booze in through the front, and they go out through the back, and yeah. they're selling them at a discount. But you know, it's still all profit. <laughs> when he goes to Polly and begs him for help, knowing how it ends, in that scene when he goes to Polly and says, "I need your help. I need you to be my partner," he knows how that ends, but he also knows it's the only string he has left to play. Well, let yeah. me ask you this, because like they keep cutting over to Henry in that scene and Henry's clearly like the go between in that. And it, oh, I always wondered, like, how much did like Henry really set that up? The poor guy, like not really knowing what was what a partnership with Paulie would entail. You know, how much does Henry bring stuff like this to Paulie? It always made me wonder because I he just he seemed like too much of an eager go between yeah. for those two guys. It just always made me wonder. What do I know about restaurants? What do I know about restaurants? I know how to sit down, and order a meal. What do I know? What I don't I understand. And like at that felt like that speech came pretty easily to Paulie. Like he's been around this before and he knows exactly what he's doing. Like, oh come on, why would I do this? No, I need your help. Well, okay, fine, whatever, <laughs> sure. Six <laughs> months later, the place is all torched. <laughs> it's like and when he's explaining, you know, the the whole, you know, fuck you, yeah. pay me thing, that narration, like, yeah, you really get the sense that they've done this before. To yeah, oh, yeah. The first time. <laughs> yeah, but, it's but a science. To your, to your point, though, Tom, that this brings up central to the character of Henry Hill, that he is not a boss. He's a conciliary, right? This is a guy who is not the man in charge. He's the guy who makes things happen for the guy in charge. Yeah. Starts out by getting drinks as a kid selling cigarettes he starts out by and then he then he's serving drinks or he's holding tommy back or he's bringing marks to polly when he tries to go out and be a boss on his own he mucks it up he has, he, yeah. he's not he's not a, a head man yeah the only reason why he survives that whole of tons of thing is because he tipped off jimmy about it and asked nothing in return yeah. and wasn't even in on it. and he got money from jimmy voluntarily up front he even asked for anything and then that's why jimmy didn't put him on the hit list he, he got so money like, before maury even did who who's oh, maury. Maury did maury good grief yeah maury that's it's a whole other <laughs> show almost we could go show just on maury yeah, poor maury <laughs> Poor Maury. I know, right? Seriously, like somewhere there's a fan film just but, about Maury and his exploits. But you know, he, I, I gotta tell you. <laughs> reshoot the whole film from Maury's perspective. I think that would be kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, but, but I didn't like him one Starts bit. Starts out in the pool. Like, like, I, I, yeah. I was like, I, I was like, you're about to get whacked and I don't mind. 
the whole film you think yeah. he's about to get wet. The entire every yeah, time he's, he's on camera, whack. you're like, that guy's dead. Yeah. Well, there's a great scene when he's going to get whacked and they're having such a good time. Jimmy calls it off. And then Maury unsalvages his own, his own salvation. And basically, like, he has to go and bother him one more time for the money. He's like, okay, what, you know, let's do it now. Come on, bring him to the car. <laughs> it's like, you got your piano you know, string with you? you got, back okay. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, just, it's, it's, it's so bad. You know, normally at this point, I would go into my, my final thought. But I wanted to kind of bring up just a point of conversation real quick. I'd love to get your thoughts on this because I think – I think it says a lot that in the three decades since Goodfellas came out, I don't think there really had been that many gangster movies that come close to besting this one in terms of general popularity or, or widespread critical acclaim. Departed was close. Departed was close. Uh, but I agree with you. That would have been my choice, yeah. Yeah, a, another Scorsese movie and a movie that probably should have been retitled Boom, Headshot. But <laughs> <laughs> there have been some good ones, to be sure. But a lot of the standouts in this genre, honestly, have been more about cheap thrills or glorifying the criminal world than telling an authentic story about a world where normal people generally don't or shouldn't dwell, right? But something I've noticed, for me anyway, this, this might be my own personal viewing history, is that I've noticed that among some of the best post-Goodfellow gangster flicks, I've noticed the commonality is that a lot of them don't deal with the classic Italian-American crime scene. They focused on organized crime world of different ethnic cohorts within America, uh, the African-American mob, the Irish mob, the Jewish mob, the Chinese mob, Japanese mob, the Latinx mob. I think what Goodfellas has done, it hasn't just been the best gangster movie in the last 30 years. I think it kind of capped off an era of Italian-American gangster movies because gangsterism in this country seems to have moved beyond that particular cohort, at least in the eyes of the stories we tell about it. I pulled up this list just real quick, the best gangster movies since Goodfellas that I found on this um, thing. And it, uh, it does list The Departed. It, it does say, like, it calls Pulp Fiction a gangster movie, which uh, tangentially. Okay. Usual Suspects, Casino, um, uh, Donnie Brasco, Heat, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, but to your point, very few of those are the traditionally, like you said, the, you know, Casa Nostra, uh, Godfather uh, type movies. Donnie Brasco always struck me as just another version of Goodfellas that wasn't as entertaining we as Americans, we, we seem to love gangster movies. And I think that there's, my theory is that there's a certain outlaw spirit to a people who built their nation out of revolution and, and, and breaking somebody else's law. But I think also, honestly, gangster movies provide this dark reflection of the American dream as, as we like to, to think about it and mythologize it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where it's like criminal hustle displaces hard work and larceny and murder displaces craft and determination. It's like a nightmarish side of this value that binds a lot of us together and keeps us going and like we and i think we like looking in that mirror even if we're rattled by what we see you get these gangster movies about cohorts in this country who are new to the scene and they're newest to the american dream and for that particular cohort crime becomes an especially wide third rail for those who don't feel like running uphill and it's not unique to any particular cohort it's unique to if you're on the marginalia of america the easy out of crime becomes especially hard to deny that's like willing, you know, the American dream to exist where it can't almost. Um, it's it's really interesting though. Like I, I from from the or original question you asked, Phil, I, I feel like by the time this movie came out, we already had so many great gangster movies that were focused on the Italian American aspect of it. Like you almost thought like they couldn't pull off a movie that was as good as as Goodfellas. Right. Was. 
Yeah. So it's yeah, kind I, of like after this is done, it's like, where else do you go? And, you know, it, it's not like there's a lack of other types of, you know, people in this world doing organized crime. I mean, like you can ask my ex-girlfriend, she fell victim to the whole like, you know, Russian mob, uh, you know, lose your furniture during the move. But if you can give us a few yeah. grand, we'll locate it for you. That kind of thing. No, oh, yeah, uh, sure. So, you know, it, it's out there. And like you see other movies sort of, you know, really going into all those other, um, you know, aspects of it. But like, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. It's, it's like that. I think that's the appeal of it is it's marginalized people who, you know, really need their own sort of version of the American dream. And, and you know, how it, it's kind of like a weird fascination that we have with it. But, we have a weird fascination with the American dream too. Guys, thank you so very much for uh, joining us tonight. Everybody, thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. <laughs>